Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we hug things out in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 34, which begins with Wes proposing an alternative course of action, and it ends with Wes just being carried away by Bear Claw Mohawk. <laughs> this is an interesting minute, because really only one thing happens. Yeah. We got a snippet of it yesterday, where Wes shouts, no, and his voice is very guttural when he's shouting and, mm. and moving around, but he follows up the no from yesterday with no, no more talk. He is not interested in this discourse that the Lord Humongous has started up because I feel like he's overwrought with anger at the loss of the golden youth. Yeah, it's a natural reaction. Mm -hmm. I kind of can't blame him. People get angry when they lose their loved ones. And his is to an extreme, but this is a series of extremes. Yeah. <laughs> Max similarly went to an extreme in his grief and hence the rest of the series. So Wes going to an extreme in his anger and his desire for revenge is par for the course. Yeah, I think so. Back in season one, at some point, I can't remember where exactly, it was either when Max went to the hospital to find Goose or Jesse was consoling him on the beach or it might have even been after Jesse was run down on the road. But we talked about the seven stages of grief at some point back in the first season. And for people that are just joining us this season, according to the angermanagementresource.com, the seven stages of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief are as follows. Shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, and acceptance. And we kind of follow Wes through a couple of these steps. There's the initial shock that we saw yesterday mm -hmm. when he spun around and saw that the golden youth had a boomerang sticking out of his head. I feel like when he was crouched over the golden youth with his hand on his face, I feel like that was kind of the denial phase and then as soon as he grabbed that boomerang he entered the anger phase which lasts a long time exactly compared to his previous stages mm -hmm. which he flew through he kind of did. So he's still very upset about his loss at this point. I jumped on another website, the Crossroads Hospice Charitable Foundation website, where they talk about anger as you're going through grief in the face of loss. And one of the things that they said really stood out to me, talking about how when someone you love has died, a lot of your basic human needs are kind of threatened. You often rely on someone that you love when you lose them. So maybe you lose financial stability. Sometimes you lose a support network. Sometimes you lose status. If you are so used to being a couple and now you're a single person, or if you're a child or now you're an orphan, there's a change in how other people see you. So I feel like all of those upheavals, all hitting him at once, are definitely contributing to his anger. And right now, Wes needs to direct that anger. And on the website, because they're dealing with real people in real situations and not, you know, written stories taking place in the post-apocalypse, they talk about how you often get angry with the ones that are around you the most or you're angry with a deity or something like that they mention that sometimes that anger can be misdirected and not healthy i feel like 
in this situation with Wes, he's directing his anger at the compound because the feral child is part of the compound. And so he's he's pretty spot on about where he's directing this anger. Yes. We were talking, was it yesterday or perhaps the day before when we were talking about Lord Humongous and his speech about, look what you made me do. This is all your fault if you'd just given me the fuel. I think that was Monday. Nobody would have gotten hurt. I kind of see Wes's reaction as an extension of that. He's focusing on the group because if the group had just cooperated in the beginning, none of this would have happened. So he's blaming them as a whole for things that really aren't their fault. That didn't come out as strong as I was hoping it would. Yeah, I'm not quite sure if I follow. So using the energy of that anger, the next step that Wes takes after shouting is to jump up on top of the Lord Humongous's truck and try to grab at the wheel. And I find this is an interesting strategy, and I kind of wonder what he was planning on doing there once he got up onto the truck. I think one possibility is to gain control of the loudspeaker mm-hmm. and command people to attack. I don't know if they would have listened to him, yeah. but it's one thing he could have done. Because I definitely feel that he was jumping up there almost to grab the wheel and just take control of the truck itself. Right. Which also wouldn't have been a good idea. Right. Because if he had fired up that thing and just charged headlong at the gate, that truck doesn't exactly have a roof or doors or windows, anything to protect it against the fire. The only thing they would have to protect against all-out assault from the compound are the two hostages at the front. And really, if he smashes headlong into the bus gate with that truck, the hostages are going to die. And then they'll have no protection. So he'll just get barbecued. So not a good plan to just charge headlong at the gate like that. But Lord Humongous isn't going to let him do it. No, no. Lord Humongous is very fast to grab Wes in a classic bear hug. And I call it a bear hug because that's exactly what it is. I jumped on Wikipedia and they describe a bear hug thusly as a body lock, a grappling clinch hold, and used primarily in a stand-up grappling position where the arms are wrapped around the opponent, either around the opponent's chest, midsection, or even thighs, sometimes with one or both of the opponent's arms pinned to the opponent's body. The hands are locked around the opponent, and the opponent is held tightly to the chest. The bear hug is a dominant position with great control over the opponent, and it also allows an easy takedown to the back mount position. Apparently, it is a very painful move as much of the pressure is being exerted onto the opponent's sternum. It often causes causes pain in the back bones and muscles as well as forces air out of the lungs. So in professional wrestling the move is most often used by wrestlers known for great upper body strength and Apparently, there was an actual bear called Terrible Ted, who was like a 600-pound wild animal that would wrestle humans back in the day, who would use this same exact strategy. Okay, hold on. What does back in the day mean? Well, I will tell you. Back in the day meant, you know, between 1950 and 1974. Okay, I don't... I don't don't get it. So... Why on earth would people actually wrestle an actual bear? So, Terrible Ted, most likely born 1949 or 1950, was a Canadian-American black bear who was a professional wrestler owned by, well, I should say managed by Dave McKingney, who was a Canadian, and he took his trained bear and... Apparently, Terrible Ted debuted his wrestling career April 1st, 1950 as Ted the Wrestling Bear and defeated Tony Galento 
in Ashbury Park, New Jersey. And for however many years he was active, I think 24 years, he, uh, you know, was a bear that would wrestle people. They took his claws out and they took his teeth out and they put a muzzle on him. So it's not like he was ripping people apart, but... Okay, that makes sense, but that's horrific. Well, I mean, the whole idea of making a wild animal wrestle humans. Yeah, I take issue with calling him a professional wrestler because it's not like he was an independent entity who was profiting from his work. Well, I mean, he is an official WWF. Or is he official? WWF? So it's kind of... <laughs> it's funny because the WWF is the, the, the World, World Wildlife, Wildlife Foundation. Federation yeah. Foundation. And so the WWF had to rename itself to the WWE. Yeah. So on October 15th, 1971, Ted made his WWF debut against the Beast at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. Earlier that year, he wrestled for the first time in Maritimes, Halifax, and California, where he defeated the future WWF champion, superstar I Billy Graham. I'm having so many issues. I'm going to YouTube. <laughs> Ted the Terrible. Terrible Ted. Terrible the Ted. The wrestling bear. All right. So Julia just watched a video about Terrible Ted on her phone. I paused the audio, so some time has passed. Okay, that was ridiculous. Yeah. It was uncomfortable. The animal was clearly being exploited, and, like, the bear's not wrestling. He's attacking and defending. Like, he's not wrestling. Wrestling is, like, you know, the, the showy kind of wrestling is a choreographed fight. It's a cooperative effort. Yes. Like, each member of the fight understands that there's something going on, right. and they work together. Yes. That's not possible with an animal. No. <laughs> and even the video I watched, he was wrestling with his trainer. So if there was anybody that he could have some sort of routine with, it would be his trainer. And no, the bear just got on top of him until the trainer couldn't get out from underneath him. And then the ref came in and called it. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, he's got his... He's led in on a leash. And that is that was disturbing. Him, a bear being led around on a leash. Uh, so he's brought in on a leash. And they don't remove the leash. So he's got this rope attached to his muzzle. They can easily get wrapped around things, body parts, necks. Like, it looked incredibly dangerous, just that leash. Yeah. So not a huge surprise that they don't do a lot of wild animal wrestling anymore. No. At least not on, like, television or anything like that. But yeah, this move that the Lord Humongous is using on Wes is your classic bear hug. And I think the main point of using the bear hug was illustrated in that second chunk of text that I was reading. The idea that the bear hug is good for forcing air out of the lungs. So Wes is hysterical. At this point, he wants to get into the compound. He wants to murder everyone in that compound as revenge for the Golden Youth. And to be in that level of a frenzy, you know, you're breathing very heavily. And I think what Lord Humongous does is he takes hold of Wes. And every time Wes breathes out, Humongous squeezes a bit tighter. That way, Wes can't breathe in as deeply as he was able to before. Right. So it's a very constrictive thing. Yeah, prevents him from yelling, for one. Mm -hmm. And as the minute goes on, Wes shouts less. He gets much quieter. By the time he's almost out, he's like just barely whispering. And by the end of this minute, I'm pretty sure he's just out. I'm pretty sure he's unconscious. It was kind of hard to tell, but the way he's carted away... Yeah. 
<laughs> a conscious Wes wouldn't allow himself to be carted away that way. Yeah. Slung over someone's shoulder like that, he would want to walk away on his own. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that this is nothing new for the Lord Humongous. I think he's probably had to do this in the past, but he's very good with it. He holds on to Wes until Wes loses consciousness, and then he lets him go. Right. He allows him to breathe again. So Wes is going to come to soon. It's not like any permanent damage is going to take place. I think there needs to be at least several minutes. Is it minutes of oxygen deprivation to the brain before permanent damage happens? Oh, yeah. It's like seven minutes, something like that. So, I mean, the fact that he loses consciousness and then immediately is able to breathe again. Fine. Oh, it's almost like a professional wrestler performed that move. (laughs) Or like a Swedish bodybuilder. Yeah. So as this interaction is happening between Wes and the Lord Humongous, we cut to Max, and he's kind of standing on top of the wall. It's fairly close up. He's watching all of this, and then he turns his head to look over at the Warrior Woman. And Virginia, she's the next one we see, and she's kind of looking back at Max. And I feel like that look between them is kind of like Max saying without words, you know, can you hear what's going on? I don't I don't understand what's happening here. It's almost like looking to her for an evaluation of the situation. Because I feel like Max is watching this happening and isn't quite sure what to think of it. Does that sound about right? I kind of disagree. Wes is yelling from that far away. I don't think it's very clear. Yeah. There's a reason that Lord Humongous is using the loudspeaker. And even then, it's just not very clear. Yeah. I question whether or not they could understand him with the loudspeaker. But the body language and seeing the events, the movements going on, I think they're kind of getting the gist. Yeah. That things are more dangerous now. I think they are exchanging looks, saying, okay, this may actually turn into a fight. We need to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Because I felt the second look between Virginia and Zeta. Yeah. Because she turns her head away from Max and looks over at Zeta, and Zeta's on the flamethrower, and he looks back at Virginia, and he kind of, like, nods his head a little bit. Yes. I feel like the two of them have a much better grasp on the situation. Yes. And also, Max doesn't know anybody. Yeah. When you're using looks to communicate, you gotta know the person on some level. And all Max knows about the warrior woman is that she's very strong and aggressive. Yeah. And all the warrior woman knows about Max is that he deals in So it might not be that Max is looking to get an explanation from her. Maybe he's just kind of looking to almost ask, do you guys have this? Like, are you guys... Right, because he's still chained up. He doesn't have a weapon. There's really not much he can do. So maybe he's like, "You're, you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, right? Yeah. You know this is coming. It makes me hope that when the group rushed out of the gate to meet Max, that someone grabbed his weapon belt and that it's not still sitting oh, on the yeah. ground. I'm pretty sure Zeta grabbed it. He seemed to be on top of that, searching Max and collecting his things. I, I'm pretty sure yeah. that's what happened. You know, they brought the vehicle in and so, that was like a particular effort. They had to go out and get it. Yeah. So, so I would one of think... them could have thrown that stuff in the car. Yeah. We go from looking at people in the compound back out to the exchange happening between Wes and the Lord Humongous. And we get this shot from behind the Lord Humongous where we can see the back of his head. Ooh, yeah. 
Uh, first and foremost, very pale. Surprisingly pale. His whole body is surprisingly pale. No, no, like, like, his body is, looks kind of like It's starting sunburnt. to sunburn, but you can tell it's freshly in the sun. Yeah. It's a very pink sunburn. Yeah, it's not like he has a good base tan going, but like the... But the back of his head... It's very, it's very light. Yes, and it looks, the skin looks very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And one of the major things about this angle is that we start seeing, like, giant veins in his head like starting to bulge is that the right word yeah i think so yeah yeah and i wish i could find some information about the prosthetic they had him wear but i couldn't the one thing i did find though is that when george miller was giving an interview i think it was in 1984 to a magazine whose name i could not find because i frankly didn't look that hard but he said that when they were putting together the backstories for the lord humongous in road warrior they envisioned him as a former military man, someone who had a severe accident with fire and so his face underneath that mask is like severely burned and there are like just little wisps of hair left and he has no ears. So he's the hound. He's like mm, 125% more burned <laughs> than the hound. Yeah. There actually is an entry in the trivia section of the Lord Humongous's page on the Mad Max Wikia, mm -hmm. which that was a lot of qualifiers. But apparently in an early version of the script, George Miller actually threw around the idea of having the Lord Humongous be Goose. Okay. Which okay. would have been interesting. I'm not sure it would have worked as well. It would have been a very interesting dynamic, Goose fighting Max. Things have happened in Goose's life that have turned him into this person that would fight Max. I think discovering Goose alive would have been a huge blow to Max. And yes. I'm not sure how he would have handled it. I th I'm glad that they didn't because I think bringing Goose back and giving Max some of what he lost back. Max is Mad Max because of everything that happened to him in the first movie. Mm -hmm. And giving one of those people back to him would have changed Mad Max into, I don't know who, but a different person again. And it just wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. So as the Lord Humongous is holding on to Wes, he is speaking to Wes. He's saying, be still my dog of war. I understand your pain. We all lost someone we love, but we do it my way. And like I said earlier, Wes is gasping at this point. He says, losers, losers, wait. And Lord Humongous continues, we do it my way. Their fear is our ally. The gasoline will be ours. Then you shall have your revenge. And this little exchange he had, once again, reminded me of Star Wars, because what doesn't? <laughs> but specifically, it reminds me of like Darth Maul in The Phantom Menace, where he's like, at last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have our revenge. And the whole idea of fear is very connected to the dark side. You know, Yoda has that whole fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering thing. Mm -hmm. And it goes so far as, according to the Star Wars wikia that I was reading, dark side users have the ability to instill fear in their victims only using the force, causing them to go all the way almost to complete hysteria, being tormented by their worst fears. Mm. So Lord Humongous is definitely like the extremely the muscular Emperor Palpatine yeah. of this movie, which I gotta say, that would have been quite the different Emperor Palpatine if... 
Luke gets onto the the second Death Star, and that chair turns around, and it's just this giant, muscled out Swedish guy with a weird mask and straps of leather. Yeah, it also makes me think about the Siths have a tendency to misplace blame and anger, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what's going on here. <laughs> That Wes is misplacing his anger and Humongous in his speech misplacing his blame and the pair of them just won't take responsibility for anything. That's a good point. It's like they don't want to. Neither do the Sith. (laughs) I think part of Wes's anger might be stemming from a little bit of guilt because the boomerang hit the golden youth because Wes ducked. Yes. So there might be a little twinge of regret that he didn't do something to block the boomerang. Right. I don't think it goes as far as as trading a life like I'm alive because he's dead. And if I were dead, he'd be alive. Yeah. I don't think Wes goes that far to wishing that he were dead so that Golden Boy could be alive. Yeah. I don't think he'd ever reach that No, but I can picture him wishing he could have deflected it rather than just ducking, like you said. It's kind of like when you're in a parking lot and you can see a shopping cart rolling across the parking lot down a slight incline and it's headed towards your vehicle. Uh And you know that if you just pick up your pace a little bit, you can keep it from hitting your car, but you're carrying something and so you don't want to hustle. And then the shopping cart hits your back turn signal and cracks the glass and you're like, oh, if I had only hustled up, I could have prevented my turn signal from being cracked. Yeah. And then you're angry. And so you just like kick the tire and it's like you're misdirecting that anger at the tire instead of inward at yourself because you didn't take the hustled up step to prevent that damage from happening. Yes. So I guess that's his guilt step. Yeah. (laughs) Wes falls unconscious. He is out of breath and just droops off. And Lord Humongous calls for someone to take him away. And the person who comes to grab him is a character named Bearclaw Mohawk. Before we get into Bearclaw Mohawk, because I know we have lots to talk about with him, I want to talk a little bit more about the Sith parallel. Okay. Because I'm still thinking about it, and I'm really liking it, the dynamic. I'm picturing Wes as Darth Vader. Okay. He's been presented to us as very strong, very intimidating, powerful, and then we discover that there is a greater power than him who exerts control over Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same way as as Wes and Lord Humongous. It's a very interesting parallel between the Sith and this pair of marauders. So does that make the golden youth Padme and I guess her sadness is the boomerang and the feral child is Obi-Wan? I feel like like I'm trying to make too many parallels and I'm kind of imploding on myself. I, I think you are. Yeah. But I think if we were to spend more time, we could find more parallels. There's lots of like power dynamics and and things going on there that I think if we wanted to, we could spend quite a bit of time on. That's what I love about stories that are based around the hero's journey and the Joseph Campbell structure. Yeah. Is that everything is everything and Mm -hmm. crossovers (laughs) are everywhere. Yes. So speaking of everything being everything, Guy Norris, the the man who is behind the bear mask and mohawk of Bear Claw Mohawk, he is a surprisingly accomplished individual in the cast because the part he plays is very small in front of the screen but behind the scenes guy norris is one of the most prolific stuntmen slash stunt coordinators i think i've seen so far because i really took some time to dive into him 
So Guy Norris is best known for Mm -hmm. Mad Max Fury Road in 2015, where he worked on the stunt team and as a stunt coordinator. He worked as a stunt coordinator for Suicide Squad. He was the second unit director slash assistant director for the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Seriously? He was the stunt coordinator for Moulin Rouge. And that's just the top four. Wow. Oh, hold on to your pants because we're about to get impressive. So... The Ghost in the Shell movie that just came out this year, he was the supervising stunt coordinator on that. He was the stunt coordinator on the Happy Feet movies, as well as Babe Pig in the City. Wait a second. I know. It's an animated movie. I don't know why they needed a stunt coordinator. I don't know. He was a stunt driver for Superman Returns. He was a stunt coordinator for Stealth. He was the stunt coordinator for Bulletproof Monk. He did a bunch of coordinating for stunts on Farscape and Water Rats. He was the stunt coordinator for Operation Dumbo Drop. (laughs) He also coordinated stunts for Quigley Down Under and Sword of the Bushido. A lot of stuff. The Blood of Heroes, Salute of the Jugger. He was the stunt coordinator on that one. Wow. He has over 55 stunt credits on IMDb. He started working on Road Warrior. That was the first movie he ever did, and he's been working ever since. And that's not all. Aside from being the stunt coordinator, he was also either second unit director or assistant director on projects like The Blood of Heroes, like I mentioned before, The Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings The Two Towers, Lord of the Rings The Return of the King. So he was involved in that entire process as a second unit director. He was a second unit director and did stunts for the movie Australia with Nicole Kidman. Mm. He's got eight acting credits, the first one being Bear Claw Mohawk, and he actually played a jugger in The Blood of Heroes, one of the Red City guys. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They were... Very stunty. Yes. He hasn't had an acting credit since 1994, but like I said, he's been working behind the scenes for a long time. It's nice to get to know people behind the screens. We spend a lot of time on our podcast and then in general talking about actors and people right up front, even directors maybe writers but once you get down to those other people who are involved who are very influential in how the movie turns out we don't really talk about them much Mm -hmm. in an interview he did with wired magazine he talked about how as a teenager he toured with an old-fashioned thrill show they did death defying acts and traveled across australia he says there was always a clown act with high falls and exploding fake toilets cowboy fight (laughs) scenes rope motorcycle crossovers firewalls yeah he says if a local fair paid enough they'd crash cars and motorbikes guy Norris goes on to say, those days we thought you could eat four inch nails for breakfast and wipe your bum with sandpaper. We thought we were bulletproof. So in 1980, he turned 21 while preparing for Mad Max to the Road Warrior. And he says that George Miller took all of those stunts that they did in Evil Knievel style thrill shows and put them on steroids. And that the low budget and brutal action style grabbed sci-fi by the scruff of its neck and dragged it down the space opera stratosphere. <laughs> I was George's go-to guy, says Norris, who performed as Mel Gibson's driving double and menaced as the marauder Bearclaw Mohawk. He continues... Essentially, every character that jumped onto the tanker was me. I'd put on a different wardrobe, (laughs) jump, then put on a different wardrobe, and jump again from a different position. That's excellent. Now, wait, isn't Bearclaw Mohawk in the scene with the rig, like, way at the end, like, the big scene with the rig? He jumps on, like, the hood of the the rig, right, at some point? You might be thinking of Wes. Oh, okay. Who's perched on the front of the truck. Because you can see Max driving at the same time that that yeah. Mohawker is on the hood. Bear It'd Claw be funny Mo- if it was both Bear Claw, if it was both Guy Norris. Yeah. 
Bearclaw Mohawk is the one that smashes through the back window and latches onto Max's shoulder with ah, his bear with claw, his bear claw appendage thing. So, all right, rough guy, rough rider. Yeah, yeah, really cool, really cool guy. Yes, and you know, here he is carrying Wes. <laughs> I really like that it was he that came and got Wes because they're both Mohawkers. Mm-hmm. I they're, think they're part of the same like clan. Same faction. Yeah. So that was kind of nice. A little familial. I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. Moment. They take care of each other. Okay. First of all, quickly, I noted that the way that Lord Humongous deals with Wes by giving him a bear hug until he calms down by going unconscious, but it counts, is the same way that Max dealt with Dog. When oh, he yeah. was getting all riled up, he gave him a bear hug until he calmed down. Yeah. So that was a really nice parallel. I definitely think I really when Max did it to Dog, it was more of a comfort thing and yes. not so much of an asphyxiating <laughs> thing. Right. <laughs> One thing that I had you write down in your notes yes. that I wanted to bring up real quick is that when the Lord Humongous is interrupted as he's presenting a plan to people. He deals with it by holding on to Wes until Wes falls unconscious. And then Wes is going to come to later and just, you know, know that he's in his place. In Mad Max, in the scene on the beach, yes. Toe Cutter is telling everybody that the bronze are bad and they're going to deal with them in a certain way. Johnny interrupts the toe cutter, and the toe cutter responds by dragging Johnny out into the ocean, putting a shotgun in his mouth, and explaining that he needs to keep that mouth shut, or he's going to shut it for him. Interesting difference. They both... Have an element of physicality? Yes, and they, they both exert their dominance... Thoroughly. Like, at, by the end of the scene, you have absolutely no doubt as to who is in charge. Mm -hmm. But while they were both very physical, Toe Cutters was more violent and just more odd. Though Toe Cutter is odd. He mm. says things odd. He does things odd. He takes Johnny for a walk out into the ocean. Yeah. He deals with Johnny one-on-one. -on -one. Whereas the Lord Humongous deals with Wes in front of everybody. Yes. Because I think Toe Cutter has the personality to keep everyone loyal. I think Humongous needs to show everybody that yeah. he has the power to crush them if they oppose him. Yes. I think it's another stark difference between the two. Toe Cutter, he did have a certain presence about his face and his expression and the way he spoke. Humongous doesn't have any of that. The exact opposite. All of that stuff is hidden away. So he has to exert his personality in a very different way mm -hmm. by squeezing people until they fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think serves better for the larger group of people that he has to control. Right. Uh, his gestures are bigger. Yeah, the Acolytes was one faction with mm -hmm. a single leader. Yep. The Lord Humongous's Horde is at least three or four factions that he has wrangled together. So yes. he's got to be quite out there when it and comes could, to exerting dominance. And you could say that the leaders of the various factions, Wes being one of them, are his lieutenants. The same way the group of seven or eight, I can't remember how many now. I think he had seven, seven inner circles. Yeah. But they don't have the same kind of relationship. No. Nah. That Toe Cutter had with his lieutenants. So as Bearclaw Mohawk carries Wes away, we wrap up this minute. We're going to pick up tomorrow with the Lord Humongous finally getting to go on with what he wanted to say. Before all this hubbub took over. So come back for that. It's also going to be Friday the next time we talk to you. So we'll have some fresh eyes. We got a couple of special guests lined up. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Come back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy. 
and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 34 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow. Thank you.